Well, good morning, RCC family. How's everyone doing today? Everyone feeling great? One, one hour less sleep than you normally get, and you're here. Good job. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Tim Cargis, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here on staff. And I just want to say thank you for the kindness, for the warm welcome, for the grace as I get adjusted and as my wife, Alyssa, and our two boys, Noah and Abraham, get adjusted to things here. We're, we're figuring out new rhythms and, and that sort of thing. And, and just this last week, um, we put our house in Fremont up on the market and we accepted an offer. And so we are in the process of transitioning to Ashland. Um, so we're excited about that. Yeah. We are praying that God would put us where he wants us in this community because we want to be uh, Ashlandtonians or a Ashlandites. A Ashland, I don't, I don't know what we, what we are. We, we want to be in Ashland. How's that? Um, and so we're looking forward to where God would put us there. Um, so what an honor it is for me today to get to dig into God's word and share a message with us today. And so if you're new with us, or if you haven't been here in a while, we've been in this great sermon series called Tethered. And so in Tethered, we are going through the gospel of Mark, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we want to stay connected to the truth of God, because if you're like me, you can sort of tend to drift or wander if you're not connected to that. And so last week, Lonnie took us through Mark chapter 12, 28 to 34, the greatest commandment. And this week, we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, 35 to 40. And so we're going to continue on. And then next Sunday, we're going to finish out with Mark chapter 12. So don't miss that. But I just want to give a brief recap of where we've been so far. And if you remember, in chapter 11, Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. So this is Palm Sunday. The, the branches are waving and people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna, blessed is the, king, the coming kingdom of our father, David. And so I want us to put a pin in that reference to David right there. Because then later, Jesus, he curses a fig tree. He cleanses the temple. He makes the religious leaders really mad. And then at the end of chapter 11, the religious leaders, they start hitting Jesus up with all of these different questions, right? Like, who, who gave you the authority to do these things that you're doing? And who should we pay taxes to? Should we pay them to Caesar? Whose wife is this poor woman who's been married seven times, going to be in heaven? And then what is the greatest commandment that Lonnie took us through last week? And so for some context, again, all of this is happening in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the holy city. There are the cream of the crop religious leaders that live in Jerusalem. If, if the Israelites had a Hollywood walk of fame, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes would pay to get a star in Jerusalem, right? They would all line up for that. These guys, they knew their stuff, they, and they were fed up with who this Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be. And so if you remember clear back in chapter 2 of Mark, Jesus heals this paralytic, this paralyzed man. But before that, he tells the man that his sins are forgiven. What a crazy thing to say, because only God can forgive sins, right? And so the teachers of the law are just beside themselves that here is a man who claims that he ha is on the same level as God. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth, they think? He may think that he's the son of God, but we're going to prove he's just another nobody who is going to 
have a following that's going to disappear as soon as he's gone. So in their purest motives, these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, they may have thought they were shepherding Israel, right, and, and protecting them from a false prophet. Since they knew the Old Testament scriptures really better than anyone else in the world. Again, these were the premier religious scholars of the day. They could outdo anyone in terms of religious scripture interpretation, authority, understanding. And so if Jesus thinks that he is the Christ or the Messiah, we're going to prove that he's not. And so they start barraging Jesus with these questions. And then he responds well. He answers each of their questions uh, to a great degree, and so they missed who Jesus actually was. Why did they miss that? Well, the Messiah in their minds is very different from who Jesus was, who Jesus is. So how did all of these learned scholars, how did these learned teachers and leaders get everything so wrong? Well, there's, there's multiple reasons and, and a lot of speculation, but one reason is really plausible and it's really hard to ignore, and it's this. They were reading into the text instead of drawing meaning out of it. And, and there's a fancy, fancy word for that, which is eisegesis. And, and so what eisegesis does is that it starts with this idea, right? And, and then it seeks to kind of force that idea to go into the words of the text. So think of, think of like a water balloon. So this water balloon is like your idea. And, and then you place that water balloon on a Bible, and you can, you can have a separation there. You know there's a water balloon and a Bible. But if you start to squeeze that water balloon and really push into it, eventually the water balloon bursts, and the water soaks the Bible. And, and, and then you say, look, my idea is everywhere in Scripture. The Bible is literally saturated with it. It's all over the place. I can see it everywhere. The whole, every page of Scripture is wet with this idea, and that's eisegesis. It's, it's coming at the words with a preconceived bias, preconceived ideas about what you think the text should say. And so if you think the Messiah should be a conquering hero like a Greco-Roman god, you're going to look for verses that are going to support that. And this is still a challenge for us today, Right? We, we don't always recognize that we're doing it. Sometimes we, we just, we sort of absorb this idea from culture maybe or from people around us that have influence over our thinking. And we begin then to think, if this is true, where does this exist in scripture? So we start finding the different scriptures and, and trying to point out where that is. And so the starting point for truth in eisegesis is the idea. And what we want to do is actually draw meaning out of the text so that our starting point for truth is Scripture. Because you can see where this can go wrong. Depending on who we allow to influence our thoughts, depending on all the ideas that we decide, all the water balloons we decide to barrage the text with, we can end up with wild theologies about whatever we think could be true. And then we look at the Scripture and we try to point out where that is found. And so what we do does something to us. John Mark Comer has this, this great quote that I love, the things that we do do something to us. And so what we input into our minds is going to do something to us. It has an effect on our beliefs and on our opinions. And so if I saturate my mind with certain types of sources, certain types of opinions, certain types of people, I'm likely to think like them. So who was influencing the religious leaders of the day? It was the Romans. The, the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all kind of cozied up to power 
in the early first century, and they all had a hand in political affairs. And Paul warns against what this can do. The Romans obviously weren't believers. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, Paul says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And so there was this, this man, you've probably heard of him, at the time of the birth of Jesus, his name was Caesar Augustus, and he was the emperor of Rome at the time. And this man, he thought he was a god. In fact, he was called a savior. There, there are certain uh, scripts that, that show him as being the prince of peace. And, and the peace that he brought was ending wars in the Roman Empire. But how did he end them? He ended them with military might and power and conquest. He was a commander, and some think that he was one of the greatest leaders in human history. And Rome thrived during this time. It expanded into the known world. And then afterwards, all of these emperors sort of adopted the same mentality that they are gods. So the Jewish leadership, they watched Rome rise to power above them and take over the known world. But the Jews... They knew something. They knew that God eventually wanted to establish his own kingdom. They thought he wanted to establish a Jewish kingdom through King David. It says that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so they're just waiting for this God to bring the Messiah king who's going to lay waste to the enemies of the Jews. He's going to conquer everything around him and establish their own version of this Roman Empire a great Jewish kingdom. So they're, they're thinking, just wait, Rome. Just wait until the Messiah comes. You think your Caesar Augustus is something. Just wait until God shows up with this Messiah. The Messiah is going to show up like, like maybe the Hulk or something. He's going to destroy all of the enemies around him. And David is going to um, be praised as the ancestor to this Messiah. Just wait until the descendant of David comes. They're expecting this conquering hero like Augustus, but related to David. And so sometimes our influences, they, they infect the way that we understand God, the way that we understand scripture. And so if you read in the Old Testament, there certainly are verses about conquering enemies, but those aren't the only ones. And so the religious leaders of the day, they have, they'd absorbed this idea about the Messiah, and then they were squishing that water balloon into the scriptures that they were reading, and they were creating this comic book hero. And so it's so important when we recognize the way that we can also do this on our own. And so I love here at RCC, we focus on drawing the meaning out of the text, which is exegesis. And Anthony has taken us through the entire gospel of Mark in this series, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We didn't skip anything. And we didn't come at it with our own ideas. We're, we're seeking to allow the text to speak for itself. And so the religious leaders demonstrate this danger of eisegesis because in their minds, this Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't look anything like David. He hadn't conquered anything yet except for the poor tables that he kicked over. Those things were trashed. But other than that, David hadn't really done much conquering. He didn't, he didn't look anything like, like the, the Messiah that they thought was going to come from the line of David. He didn't look like a ripped version of a Roman god or anything at all like that. They thought maybe we can trick this person. Maybe we can trick Jesus. He's surely not very well educated. He didn't come through any of our schools. And so he probably doesn't know that much about scripture. Let's test him. But what Jesus does is he passes every test. In fact, he passes every test so well that he is, he is seen by the people of his day as the interpreter of scripture. 
above all of these amazing scholars, so-called, of the day. And so Jesus wraps up his Q&A time with these religious leaders, and then he asks a question of his own, and that's our passage for today. All right, are you with me? Okay, so let's look at Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. So you can turn in your Bibles, turn on your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, 35 to 40. And it starts here. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly, and in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and have greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses for a pretense and make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation so let's start with the scribes in verses 38 to 40 Uh, jesus doesn't have a lot of kind things to say about them so lonnie's pastors last week looked at a question from these scribes and so who are they who are these scribes they would be like scholars today they're, they're learned men, they preserve the word of God, they, they transcribe the word of God, they spoke it, they teach it, and they're supposed to live it. And so if you had a question about the scripture, you would go to the scribes. They're, they're a trusted go-to source of information. But instead of doing their jobs well, these scribes, they, they loved the benefits package that came with their position. They, they loved greetings, they were, they were famous in the streets, and people came up to them and Uh, said good job in all of the ways that you taught scripture people recognized them they had the best seats at feasts and so today these would be like youtube influencers or tiktok influencers right they they amassed followings they maybe get the best restaurant reservations and everyone loves and hearts their viral videos so everything to the scribes was this big show and even in their prayer life for a pretense they make long prayers And then Jesus ends with this sobering statement that these scribes who are in love with their fame and in love with their power and in love with their honor are going to receive a greater condemnation. And so friends, I I say this as much to myself as to everyone else here. We need to be really careful why we do what we do. Sometimes people will come up and, and compliment and, and encourage and, and affirm, and, and those are all good things. They, they love what we did at church. They love the way that we helped out at a homeless shelter or the way that we um, did something up on stage, played bass, whatever it is, and those are all good things. But if those are the motivation for why we are doing it, if receiving those greetings, those encouragements, that is an empty way to live, and Jesus says, beware of those Pharisees. And, and look, there's, there's a lot of ministry that's happening around here, which is awesome, but we need to think through why we are doing the things that we do. Are we doing them to love the greetings that we receive or the places of honor that we get? And it's our own job. It's my job to check my heart in this. Because the question is, if, if no one told me good job, would I still do it? And uh, this, this is... Um, this is embarrassing, but I, I shared this before. I shared it in the previous service, so I guess I'm not going to chicken out this one. Um, I'll, 
while back, I was in charge of a two-day seminar, uh, sort of a, a retreat type of a thing. And it was a Friday night and all-day Saturday event. A lot of work putting on uh, this, this big gathering, uh, worship and speakers and um, food activities and lodging and all the things. I worked as a team, so it wasn't just me doing everything, but ultimately it was my responsibility if it failed. And now the event went really well, in my humble opinion, or not so humble opinion. People filled out surveys and they gave feedback, but do you know what was missing? Not a single person gave me a high five and told me, good job. How rude, right? So as I, as I was praying about it, Okay, as I was whining to God about it, I realized that I had slipped into some bad thinking. And, and this question formed in my mind out of the experience, is it still good even if no one says it is? Is it still good even if no one says so? Why am I doing what I am doing? Is it for the praise of others? If so, I'm in trouble. Beware of the scribes. Don't be like them. If, if we are serving and doing ministry in some way, which I hope all of us are, and if you're not, I'd encourage you to get involved somewhere here at RCC, but why are we doing what we're doing? Earlier, we talked about how our influences can affect our view of God and infect the ways that we think. And do you know what influential ideology that I bought into in my early teens that then still impacted me years later? It was this. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I had a psychology teacher that told me that one time, and he was an influencer in my life. And I contemplated going into psychology. I started down that path for a while because this man made such an impact to me. I loved him as a teacher. And the, the saying, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, resonated with me. As if working a day in your life is bad, right? Did you know that Adam and Eve were working before they sinned, before the fall? Work isn't bad. And, and loving your job is great, but it only carries you so far. It can't be your entire motivation for doing it. Because every type of work at some point gets hard. And it's not as easy to love work when it is hard. So how did that mindset impact me? Well, I, I was attempting to follow this mantra, right? Love what you do, except that I was attempting to love the gifts of my job, the benefits package, the rewards, like the scribes. I was, I was loving the extras instead of loving the giver of the work. And so to my embarrassment, the event wasn't good in my eyes unless someone told me I did a good job. And so I'm ashamed to say that out loud because as a pastor, I'm supposed to know better. But that's true. And the scribes, they loved the greetings they, were, they received in the marketplace, but they were given a greater condemnation because they should have known better. And so Jesus says, beware of these scribes. That's a warning for us today as well. So Jesus begins this passage by saying, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now this, this is fascinating to me because Jesus has just finished this Q&A with all of these religious people. And he could have been silent after that. He could have lashed out. Instead, he asks a question. And not just any question. Why does he ask this particular question? He chooses this question that on the surface, it doesn't seem like maybe it's that significant. But he starts with the scribes. 
and he says, folks, these are your scholars. These are your keepers of the word. And why do they say that Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, why, why do they say that he is the son of David? And Jesus in this moment knows what he's doing because he knows that the scribes don't think that he is the Messiah. But he also doesn't refute their knowledge. He doesn't, ref- he doesn't say that the son of man, the son of David, um, isn't the Messiah. But he does pose a very simple question, and it is filled with layers of depth here. And if he had given the scribes a chance to answer, the scribes might have answered and responded with something from Scripture, probably. I would guess maybe something like Jeremiah 23. He doesn't give them a chance, but they might have said something like this. This is Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Some versions say righteous savior. So this prophecy is pretty clear that from David's line is going to come a Messiah, a righteous savior, a future king. So the scribes might have come back with that. But, but then Jesus doesn't let them. And he hits them with a reality that they were not prepared for in verses 36 and 37. And this is what he says. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord So how is he his son? So now if you're a scribe, you're sort of backtracking. You're you're running to the back of the temple. You're trying to check all the scrolls. You want to fact check Jesus, make sure that he's not uh, just saying whatever he wants to say. And so I love the fact that Jesus starts off by saying that David was in the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. Jesus is telling him right off the bat, hey, I know you love David and you, you, you think highly of him. And so your king, David, was filled with the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. So we know that it's true. We know it's from the Spirit of God. And it goes through the best king in all of Israel, King David. You can trust these words. And what does it mean that David is in the Spirit? Well, the Spirit gives David access to this conversation, which is amazing, that he never would have had otherwise. How could he have known what the words of God were saying, unless the Holy Spirit was telling him. So it's possible that since the the Holy Spirit was in David as he was writing this, that David wasn't even fully aware of what he was writing. And so what is David writing? Where is he quoting this from? And this is a direct quote from Psalm 110. So let's jump there real quick. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, this is really cool. So David is the writer of Psalm 10. This is King David, obviously, Goliath killer, harp player, shepherd boy David. The Holy Spirit is guiding David as he writes this. He's allowing David to hear this conversation between God the Father, who is called Lord. In your version, it might have 
in all caps, L-O-R-D in all caps, or Yahweh in the original language. And so Yahweh says to my, so who is my in this case? Well, it's David. David is the one that's writing um, my. Yahweh says to David's Lord. So David recognizes in this dialogue that Yahweh is saying something to someone who David also refers to as Lord. That's interesting. But in the English, it gets a little bit clunky. And and it says, the Lord, all caps, says to my Lord, not all caps. But in the original language, Yahweh is the Lord of Lords, God the Father, who speaks to one called Adonai, which is the second Lord. And that's translated into English just as Lord. And so Yahweh says to Adonai, and Adonai is another name for God. And it's the one that Jews would use in prayer because Yahweh was too holy to say out loud. And so David is acknowledging that God the Father, the God who created the universe, this Yahweh, is speaking to this Lord, Adonai. And he's telling him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. So Adonai is greater than David. David calls him Lord, but Adonai is also ruling. It's a ruling name. It's a king-like name. And so in verse 2 of Psalm 110, it says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Scepters are obviously for kings. So this is starting to sound a bit like the prophesied Messiah, the Christ who was to come. But then in verse 4, it gets really interesting. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So if you remember in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, he shows up. He's a priest and king of Salem, and he blesses Abraham. Abraham pays a tithe and a tribute to him as priest. And so if you're keeping track, Psalm 110 is really starting to feel and look like it is about the coming Messiah. And so David, in the spirit, he writes several qualifications for who this future Christ was going to be. Number one, he had to sit on the right hand of God. And this is a key point that the Messiah... This, this Adonai figure is sitting. The Messiah is inactive while God is active in conquering the enemies. Yahweh is the one who makes enemies a footstool. And the Messiah sits at a place of honor while that happens. And so to sit at the right hand is to sit as close as you could get to God. And so then in verse 2, after conquering, Yahweh is going to give this ruling scepter to Adonai. And then in verse 3, Christ is going to protect the reign and people are going to join him. And then finally in verse 4, we see that the Messiah is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So most priests were from the tribe of Levi, right? And so to the Jews, it would have been illogical to trace a line back to both a ruling king and to a priest. So it would have been illogical to say, you're from the line of Levi and the line of Judah or the line of David. It would have been one or the other. Either the Messiah would be a Levi or he would be a king. How can David both be, how can this future Messiah both be a priest and a king? But in in Psalm 110, it says that the Messiah is both a ruling king and a priest, but not a priest of Levi. He's not descended from that line. He is a priest of Melchizedek, who is before Abraham. Melchizedek has no beginning. He's a fascinating individual in scripture. He has no beginning and no end. We don't know when he was born or when when he died. He just shows up mysteriously. And so you can bet that the scribes knew Psalm 110 really well. And so Jesus only quotes verse 1, but he expects them to know the rest. So the scribes may have even taught from this psalm, 
but they still missed what Jesus wanted them to see, which was this, that the future Messiah would be one with God, that he would be a ruler in the line of David, and that he would be a priest. And so Jesus shows them that the Messiah is greater than David, even though he descended from David. Not only was Christ a priest and king, he's also human and divine. David is just one of those. He's only human. So David calls out an I, Lord, even though the future Messiah was going to come later as a descendant of him. So something greater than David was here, something greater than uh, conquering territory and establishing a Jewish kingdom was here. And so Jesus, he proves here that the scribes missed something. So if you're, if you're following along, Jesus is checking off all the boxes of who he is. First, he's a human. That he didn't need to prove. Obviously, they could see he was a human. Second, he was descended from the line of David. We can see his genealogies in Matthew and Luke from his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary. And then he exhibits the best qualities of being a high priest. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But Jesus is proving right now that the Messiah was bigger. He was greater. He was more than who the scribes thought he was going to be. And so even though the scribes are silenced and they are dumbfounded by this question and answer that Jesus has here in Mark 12, the people around Jesus in verse 37 heard him gladly, as it says. And, and this is where division usually happens and still happens with us today. Some people treat Jesus like the scribes did. They, they think that they know who he is. Maybe they, they heard somewhere from, from someone, this is who Jesus is. Maybe he was a post on Instagram or Facebook or something. This is who Jesus is. But that is an ice Jesus idea. And then there's the others who are the crowd who heard him gladly offer proof that he is the real Messiah. The scribes are annoyed with Jesus. The crowd loved him. And so today our question is, how do we see him? And so if you're new, first of all, again, we're glad you're here. And we want to walk alongside you and help you uh, with all of the, the questions that might come up. And maybe you get annoyed when people talk about Jesus. Uh, maybe past hurts or previous religious experiences have, have brought up pain when people talk about Jesus. And if that's the case, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had a bad experience. And so we, we want you to know who the real Jesus is. We want to draw that out of Scripture so that we avoid being disconnected, untethered from truth because there's so many misconceptions about who Jesus is. What does it mean that he's the Messiah? How is he both a king and a priest, right? How does this affect me? Well, as we wrap up, we're going to listen to Hebrews 5, which also quotes from Psalm 10. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So those are qualifications for a human high priest. And here it is compared with Jesus in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That sounds familiar. 
And in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus becomes a source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. He is our high priest. He offers prayers and petitions and fervent cries and tears to God. Man, can you imagine Jesus praying on your behalf as your priest? And, and he represents the people in all matters to God. He offers a sacrifice for sins once and for all. And he deals gently with all of us who go astray. And he did that with me early on. And here's the thing, Jesus is not just some nice story that we read in some ancient book. He's, he's not just the answer to every Sunday school question. He didn't just come on earth to answer century-old riddles about who the Messiah was going to be. He's not just a good teacher who lives on through his old words. Jesus is the Son of God. He still lives, and he is a priest forever. His kingdom has no end. And yes, he has enemies to conquer, but he doesn't conquer like Augustus does. Do you know who some of the primary enemies of Jesus are? Sin, death, and the evil one. All three separate people from the love of God, from Yahweh. All three were defeated at the cross. The Messiah didn't come just to reclaim ancient Jewish territory or conquer the world by putting these enemies to death. Jesus comes to reclaim spiritual territory in the hearts of every person in existence by giving himself over to death, even dying for these enemies. He is the high priest who didn't find an animal who was without blemish to sacrifice. He actually sacrifices himself on the cross. He places himself on the altar for you and for me. Do you know what one of the hardest areas in the entire world to conquer in the history of humanity? The area that always puts up the most resistance to being ruled. It's the human heart. Sure, Augustus could have conquered cities and forced people to call him a god, but he couldn't force people to love him in their hearts. Our hearts always resist saving. Our hearts resist any kingdom that is not a selfish kingdom. We want to be the king over our own hearts. Our hearts naturally resist surrender. But here's the thing, friends. Jesus is not a forceful king. And his kingdom is beautiful. It's full of love and joy. But there's a cost to get in. And I know that sounds strange because we often say that the gospel is free, and it is. But in Luke 14, Jesus tells us to count the cost of following him. It's going to cost you something. And what it's going to cost you is that you have to remove the flag that is planted on your heart that says, I rule this place. I rule this place. And you have to replace that flag with one that says, Jesus rules this place. Pulling up that selfish flag in your heart is painful. It's tough, 
your natural flesh is going to go kicking and screaming. But man, when you do it, it's so rewarding. It's so freeing. It, it is so full of joy because Jesus is a much better king than you could ever be for yourself. And so today you can finally surrender. If you've never given Jesus that position of Lord in your heart, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the elders after the service. We would love to talk to you about that. Jesus, he's the son of David. He is the son of man. He is greater than David. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the high priest. He is making a way where there was no way to experience the glory of heaven with him forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for making this way so that we could come. We couldn't before. Sin got in the way. And our, our own heart's desires to be our, our, our own kings over our own kingdom prevented us from entering into yours. So Jesus, thank you for being the king over all kingdoms, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you for showing us how we can draw near to you, how we can live a life that is full of joy, that is full of hope, is full of peace. Lord, we thank you that we can only do that through you, and so we give you praise today for that. And please be the king over this church, over our hearts, over our minds. Help us to expand your kingdom, not our own, here in this place. It is in your powerful name 